Well, that song is a great reminder to us that the Christian life is not about how much we love Jesus, but about how much Jesus loves us. Amen? And even when our love grows cold from time to time, as it does in every Christian's life, at least that was the testimony of the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, right? They left their first love. They were desperately in need of revival, of having that love rekindled, stirred up, fanned into flame. Um, What a blessing, what a comfort it is to know that God wants to revive us more than we want to be revived. And so we're coming to a, a throne of grace where we can come boldly and ask him to revive our hearts. Well, I want to finish up our short series on the subject of revival this morning, and revival is something that I've been intrigued by ever since I was a young believer in junior high and high school, and one of the reasons for that is I grew up in Massachusetts, less than an hour away from the town of Northampton, and if you know anything about church history, that is a significant little town um, in the New England colonies where the most well-known revival in American history started through the ministry of Jonathan Edwards. We know it today as the Great Awakening. And the Great Awakening is a term used by not just Christian historians, but even secular historians to describe several waves of revival back in the 17 and 1800s that swept through the New England states or colonies, uh, spread to the Midwest, down to the southern states along the East Coast, and even as far as Europe. And one of the most notable effects of the Great Awakening was the founding of a number of colleges and seminaries. Most of the Ivy League schools that that we know of today that are located in the Northeast, schools like Yale and Harvard and um, Dartmouth, Princeton, Brown, were originally established to train pastors and preachers and missionaries. And sadly, few if any of the students or faculty at these now liberal institutions have any idea that they're attending or teaching at a school that was once a bastion of biblical truth. Furthermore, if you've ever spent any time in the Northeast, uh, the, the spiritual climate there provides little or no evidence that any sort of revival ever took place there. I mean, really, it's a, a dark, cold place spiritually, a, a barren wasteland in some ways. Um, the, the, these uh, beautiful churches, these uh, white picturesque postcard churches that have become synonymous with New England um, are either just historical landmarks that you can go in and just tour around. They don't have any Sunday morning worship services going on. They're just there, kind of like an historic site. Or in recent years, they've been renovating these churches into condos and even coffee shops and gift stores, which is really a a tragedy. And ever since I left New England, when I was around, uh, I guess, 18, 19 years old, I've always had a burden to go back and serve as a pastor with the hope that God would use me to spark another great awakening in New England. In fact, when I was in seminary, I met a guy who... Uh, 
grew up in Connecticut. He actually played soccer at Cornell University, and we were fellow students at the Master's Seminary, and so we got to know each other, and we shared that burden for New England, and we were actually praying on a regular basis that God would send us back to New England so that we could plant a church and see God work a revival uh, where we grew up. Well, as the Bible says, we make our plans and the Lord directs our steps, right? He ended up being a missionary in Europe, and I ended up being a pastor in Texas. And so, obviously, that wasn't the Lord's plan. And so, um, I think one of the things that God used to pique my interest in revival and really fuel my passion for revival when I was in seminary was a, a special elective class that I took called Revivalistic Theology. Doesn't sound very interesting maybe to you, but for me, I was like, wow, I, I want to take that class. And, and um, basically what the course goal was to study the Great Awakening along with the preachers that God used to spark revival throughout American history. Guys like Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, um, Charles Finney, even more towards the more modern era, D.L. Moody, Billy Sunday, Billy Graham. And uh, we, we had to read all of these sermons that these men had preached and uh, the sermons that God had used, like sermons like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God and others. And uh, it was very inspiring. And I came away from that class longing to see a, a deep moving of God's spirit uh, in our day. And also uh, gave me, it gave me a desire to educate people about revival. Probably the most helpful book that I, that I read for that class is, is this book right here, simply called Revival by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Uh, maybe the finest book written in modern time on the subject. And um, I would highly recommend this to you. I'm going to be quoting from it uh, a number of times this morning. Uh, uh, another helpful book I just came across more recently uh, is this book by Walt Kaiser called Revive Us Again, Your Wake-Up Call for Spiritual Renewal. And it goes through all the Old Testament um, occasions of revival and uh, talks about them and, 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 and shows us how they apply to our lives today. So a really helpful um, resource, um, uh, both of which, by the way, we have copies of. We've ordered copies of these for the resource center if you're interested in in, in, in looking at those. And then just last week, I was given this video series uh, of the 2018 Ligonier National Conference, which um, was uh, called Awakening. And uh, I had forgotten about that, and I'm glad somebody in our church remembered and got this um, for us to have in our resource center in our lending library. But uh, this past May, um, men like um, Sinclair Ferguson and Steve Lawson and Robert Godfrey and um, uh, I'm blanking on uh, Kevin DeYoung and, and um, a lot of uh, Al Mohler, they all got, came together for this three-day conference and preached 17 messages on the subject of revival. You're like, oh, please, Ken, this is not going to turn into a 17-week series on revival. No, that's why I'm recommending this, because Lord willing, today is the end of our little series, but there's so much more that could be said about the subject of revival, and if it's piqued your interest and you want to go deeper, I would highly recommend you checking this out from uh, the Resource Center, or uh, better yet, just go online to Ligonier Conference, whatever, just type in Google Ligonier Conference Awakening. Uh, and a link will pop up, and you can actually watch every one of these sermons on video online for free. And uh, they even a actually have double time 
so you can like get through a lot of them quicker, right? Especially if you're listening to Sinclair Ferguson, who speaks with this Scottish brogue, and he takes forever to say everything he's about to say. So I turned him on double time, and a 50-minute sermon was 25 minutes. And uh, so anyway, you can do that online, and I would encourage you to watch those, those messages and listen to those messages. You'll be very encouraged and blessed uh, by those. And um, again, just my hope is that you would uh, take advantage of these resources and, and that God would use them to stir your own soul and give you a desire to pray for spiritual revival and renewal in your own personal life and also the life of our church. And uh, in light of the emphasis that I've been placing on revival, I wanted to, uh, I, thought, I thought it was only fair to, to at least let you know, I mean, what are we actually asking for when we pray for revival? And what, what, what should we be specifically looking for God to do and answer to our prayers for revival? And so we've been answering three basic questions about revival that I think simplify and summarize a very massive subject that books have been written on and entire conferences have been dedicated to. And so, but very simply, what is the meaning of revival? We talked about that. What are the prerequisites for revival? And then thirdly, what are the true marks of revival? Now we said that revival is when God sovereignly, graciously, and powerfully moves by his spirit through his word to regenerate unbelievers and rejuvenate, reanimate, revitalize, refresh, restore a believer or group of believers after a season of difficulty, disobedience, or dispassion, or as we often refer to it as an awakening or a reawakening. And again, the scriptures, even as I read earlier today, Psalm 85, 6, will you, will you not yourself revive us again? Psalm 71, 20. Um, you who have shown me many troubles and distresses will revive me again. And so there's this idea that this is not a one-time experience. This is something that should be happening on an ongoing basis in our lives. And I pointed out in the last couple of weeks that based on the biblical references to revival, that revival primarily refers to and applies to God's people individually and corporately, if my people who are called by my name, and as God's people are revived, then they in turn impact those around them, and oftentimes God uses them to initiate a revival in the lives of unbelievers. In other words, believers or the church being brought back to life results in unbelievers being brought back to life. J.I. Packer put it this way in his book, Quest for Godliness, revival thus animates and reanimates churches and Christian groups to make a spiritual and moral impact on communities. And so in order for our community to experience a revival, it needs to start within the four walls of this church. We need to be revived so that we can make an impact on those outside our church. I say that because sometimes revival is misconstrued with some evangelistic rally, but that's what revival is. We're going to have an evangelistic rally and it's targeting unbelievers. 
No, revival targets the church. And as a byproduct of that comes evangelism. And the revival of, of the lost in a, in a community, in a, in, a, in a country, or in uh, a, a, a nation or continent. Last week, we moved into the second question, what are the prerequisites of revival or for revival? We made clear that revival is not something that you can schedule. It's not something you can manufacture. You can't put it on a, on a calendar and say, we're going to have a revival next week at this time and come and we'll have revival. Listen, God is sovereign over when and where revival takes place, but God's sovereignty never negates man's responsibility. And so based on what the Bible says about revival, there are certain conditions that God has clearly laid out in order for revival uh, to take place. And we said the overarching requirement for revival is what? Remember? Humility. Humility. Namely, a broken and contrite heart which manifests itself primarily through repentance of sin and dependence in prayer. You'll never have revival if there's not repenting of sin and depending on the Lord through prayer. It's just not going to happen. If my people will humble themselves, I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. And so under this overarching requirement for revival, there, there are three prerequisites that we begin to talk about. Number one, we must humbly confess and forsake our sin. We must humbly confess and forsake our sin. And I think this is the first step to experience revival is that we genuinely are broken over our sin and we are radically committed to turn away from our sin and we beg God to help us by his spirit to mortify, to put to death the ungodly habits or deeds in our lives. Again, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, Acts 3.18, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Revelation chapter two, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. All of these verses are talking about repentance as as the means to revival. Unrepentant sin is a roadblock for revival in your life. It impedes revival. If you have unrepentant sin, it's blocking the Spirit's path, if you will, to revive you. So we need to be broken about our sin and confess it and forsake it. Number two, we must faithfully hear and obey God's word. We said there was a direct connection between the Bible and revival. All the great revivals in history were the result of people being exposed to the spirit-anointed preaching of God's word. We looked at Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9, the great revival after the walls were rebuilt there when Ezra brought the book and, and, and stood from morning till noon and, uh, and preached the word, explained the word, and the people were convicted of their sin and repented, and uh, it was just a glorious revival. And so we need to make sure that we're in the word of God. And by the way, that's how you keep a revival from getting weird and wacky. You, you keep it connected to this thing right here. And uh, everything that you experience should be uh, flowing out of and connected to the, the word of God in some way, shape, or form. Now this morning, I want to talk about the third 
prerequisite for revival. The third prerequisite for revival, and I think this is the most important one, and it's the one that we've already been talking about, and that is this, that we must desperately seek God's face through prayer. We must desperately seek God's face through prayer. And I get this from the fact that most of the references to revival in the Old Testament that we've already looked at are prayers. Psalm 80, verse 18 and 19, then we shall not turn back from you. Revive us and we will call upon your name, O Lord God of hosts. Restore us, cause your face to shine upon us. This was a prayer. Psalm 85, 6, will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Psalm 143, 11, for the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me in your righteousness. Bring my soul out of trouble. Habakkuk 3, 2, O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years in wrath, remember mercy. So the majority of the time revival is mentioned in the Old Testament is in the context of a prayer. Somebody's praying a prayer to God. And so there needs to be this desperate dependence on the Lord through prayer if revival is going to take place. In the opening chapter of his book on revival, Martin Lloyd-Jones references Mark chapter 9, that story where a father brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples to cast the demon out, and they couldn't do it. And Jesus showed up, and he got frustrated with them, and he said, oh, ye of little faith. And uh, he exercised that demon from the boy, and the disciples pulled him aside and said, hey, Jesus, why couldn't we do that? Well, they had already been doing that quite a bit, and they probably had gotten a little overconfident, thinking, hey, this is, we got this. We can do this, Right? And uh, Jesus wanted to remind them that they needed to be 100% dependent on him to do the work. And so he said, this kind comes out only through, remember, prayer. And in some gospels it says fasting in prayer. And so this is, the, this is the, the chapter he wrote called The Urgent Need for Revival Today. And this is how he concludes this, this chapter in light of this, this um, story in Mark chapter 9 about this demon-possessed boy. He said, you must become aware of your need, of your impotence, of your helplessness. You must realize that you are confronted by something that is too deep for your methods to get rid of or to deal with. And you need something that can go down beneath that evil power and shatter it. And there is only one thing that can do it, and that is the power of God. When I read that... Um, or I should say, reread that recently. I thought of what I had shared with you earlier that there was just uh, in the last year or so this this sense that just you know something was off about our church, and just feeling like you know why do we uh, do I feel a sense of st- uh, complacency or stagnancy or kind of a plateauing, and I couldn't put my finger on what what what's going on here? Is it me that's feeling this way? Is it our church that's actually experiencing this? And and, and really, for the last year and a half or so, I've been racking my brain and praying about it and, and talking to the pastors and elders about it and, 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 and honestly kind of feeling like, man, I just can't put my finger on it. And for somebody in a leadership position 
who that's your job. You're supposed to be able to figure out what's wrong and fix it, right? Um, you know that as men. If you have a company uh, and it's your responsibility to you see something not quite right, uh, it's your responsibility to figure out what's wrong and fix it, correct it. Um, uh, moms, you can appreciate this. Uh, you, in some ways, you're kind of leading, overseeing your children and your family, and you're, in some ways you're like, you know, just something's just off right now, and I, I can't really put my finger on what's what's not quite right. And, and sometimes you're just like pulling your hair out. You're like, I, I don't know. I'm, I, I'm at a loss. And so when I read this, I was very encouraged because he said, we too must become aware. We've got to feel it until we become desperate. We must ask ourselves, how can we succeed if we do not have this authority, this commission, this might, this strength, this power? We must become utterly and absolutely convinced of our need. In other words, you know what? I can't figure this out on my own. This is beyond me. We must cease to have so much confidence in ourselves and in all our methods and organizations and in all our slickness, we've got to realize that we must be filled with God's spirit. Surely no one should need to be convinced today that nothing short of a mighty outpouring of the spirit of God is adequate to deal with our situation in this mid-20th century. And at this point, he's talking about not just the church, but the world. He says, are you really still trusting In these other things, here is the vital question. Have you seen the desperate need of prayer, the prayer of the whole church? I shall see no hope until individual members of the church are praying for revival, perhaps meeting in one another's homes, meeting in groups amongst friends, meeting together in churches, meeting anywhere you like and praying with urgency and concentration for a shedding forth of the power of God such as he shed forth 100 and 200 years ago and in every other period of revival and of reawakening. There is no hope until we do. He said, we shall not be interested in revival until we realize the need of this kind. This kind only comes through prayer. The futility of all our own efforts and endeavors and the utter absolute need of prayer and seeking the power of God alone. We need to be desperately seeking God's faith through prayer. On the flight back from Hong Kong, I, I was reading uh, a book entitled Wild Revival Terries by Leonard Ravenhill. Some of you may have heard of him, one of the most well-known revivalists of the 20th, 20th century. And this book includes a lot of really good quotes from great men of the past, like Matthew Henry. He said this, when God intends great mercy for his people, the first thing he does is he sets them a praying. In other words, when God wants to bless an individual, bless a church with revival, he's going to burden their heart to pray. John Wesley added, storm the throne of grace and persevere therein and mercy will come down. And so in order for us to experience God's great mercy, his grace personally in our own lives and corporately in the life of our church, we must devote ourselves to prayer. I told the the group who's been gathering for prayer on Wednesday nights that we can't presume upon God that just because we're here praying that he'll revive our life or the life of our church. That would be presumptuous. But on the other hand, if we don't pray, we shouldn't expect anything, anything from him either. 
And so by boldly and earnestly seeking God's face in prayer, we are putting ourselves in the best possible position to experience a revival. It's like there was a thunder and lightning storm outside and you wanted to put, your, put yourself in the best possible position to get struck by lightning, what would you do? You'd grab a lightning rod or a piece of metal and you'd run out in the middle of the storm and you'd be waving it around like this, right? I don't know, trying to, you're, you're more likely to get hit by lightning out there than you would if you're sitting here, you know, hiding in the storm. Every great revival in church history was initiated and sustained by either one person or a group of people coming together to cry out to God and rent, to, to, to rend the heavens as they would pray, as the psalmist said, to rend the heavens, tear open the heavens, God, and come down and bless us. You may have heard of the Haystack Revival. It happened back in 1806. On a summer afternoon, five students from Williams College in Massachusetts, they gathered in a field to discuss the spiritual needs of those living in Asian countries, and they were burdened for who was going to go reach these people with the gospel, and all of a sudden, a thunderstorm uh, came over, and so they took shelter in a haystack, and they began to pray under the cover of that haystack during that storm for the nations. And the reason why this gathering is sometimes referred to as the Haystack Revival because God used that ad hoc prayer meeting to launch the modern missionary movement. And so you never know what a simple prayer or a simple prayer meeting will result in. Take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 33. Exodus 33, because I want us to look at, just for a few minutes, what I consider to be one of the most compelling examples of revival in all the Bible. This is that classic occasion where Moses prayed that bold, even tenacious prayer Show me your glory. Remember that? Exodus 33, verse 18. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. But what we need to understand is that request was the plea of a man who was desperate for God's presence in his life and in the life of his people. The context is Exodus 32, and if you know anything about the book of Exodus, you know that by this time, the nation of Israel had been delivered from uh, slavery in Egypt, and God had led them to Mount Sinai, and God had uh, invited Moses up on the mountain to give him the Ten Commandments, and while he was up there, uh, the people... Uh, got impatient. They wondered where he had gone and what, he, what was taking him so long. And they decided that they would uh, talk to Aaron about making them a god to worship. And uh, I mean, the, the irony of this whole golden calf incident is just uh, amazing when you think about it, that, that the actual Shekinah glory of God 
was hovering above Mount Sinai, and there they were in the foothills, and they could see all this, and yet that wasn't good enough, and they wanted to have something down here on their level that they could worship. And so as you know, they brought all their uh, gold and jewelry together, and they formed this golden calf, and they began to worship it, and it ended up turning into uh, this drunken orgy. And uh, Moses uh, begins to hear this sound coming from down on the bottom of the mountain, and he's wondering what it is, and God sends him back down and, and uh, you know, warning him that you're not going to like what you see, Moses. And sure enough, Moses rounds the corner, and he looks down, and he sees the, the people of Israel um, in this um, you know, gross debauchery, and the first thing he does is what? You remember? Takes the Ten Commandments and, and, and smashes them on the ground, symbolic of the fact that they had broken the commandments. He hadn't, they hadn't even received them yet, and they'd already broken them. And so Moses comes down and rebukes them and um, calls the, the tribe of Levi to come and kill 3,000 people who were just out of their mind crazy into this uh, sinful situation. And, um, and then look at verse 30, Exodus 32, verse 30. On the next day, Moses said to the people, you yourselves have committed a great sin and now I'm going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So this was Moses' role. He, would, he was God's mouthpiece, right? He spoke to the people on behalf of God, but he also spoke to God on behalf of the people. He was the intercessor for the nation of Israel at this time. And so verse 31, it says, Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin, and if not, please blot me out from your book which you have written. In other words, if, if, if you're not going to forgive these guys, just, just, just kill me, God. I'm done. Then the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But go now, lead the people where I told you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. Then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. Now, there was something very different about what God said to Moses in verse 34. What was it? Who had been leading Moses and the people up to that point? God had. By the, the cloud by day and the, the pillar of fire by night. And so God's presence went before them and behind them. And it was very, I mean, visibly uh, obvious that God was with them. The presence of God was with them as they traveled uh, through the wilderness. But God said, don't worry, Moses, my angel shall go before you. Well, notice what he says, verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you've brought up from the land of Egypt to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it, I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, but because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. God's like, you know what? I ain't going with you guys because I know you and I'm going to end up killing you guys. <laughs> so I'm going to send my angel. You're going to make it to the promised land. You'll get there, but I ain't going with you. 
Verse 4, when the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, say to the sons of Israel, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment? I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. In other words, these were the things that had resulted in that golden calf to begin with. Probably some remnants from their false worship in Egypt. Now, I love this little parenthesis here, verses 7 through 11, talking about this little tent that Moses had. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. Now, this was before they had the tabernacle. In fact, the tabernacle had not even been, uh, you know, described at this point. Um, uh, I guess guess it had been described um, but it had not been built. And so until this was be pre-tabernacle, this little tent, everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went out to the tent that all the people would rise and stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. And whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship each at the entrance of his tent. And so this was a big deal. Moses is on the move. Everybody popped out of their tents and, and he's going to the tent and they all kind of stood and watched and sure enough, he would duck into that tent and here comes God's presence represented by that pillar, right? And it would come in front of that tent representing that he was meeting with Moses, As Moses went into that tent. Now notice verse 11. What was going on inside that tent? Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face. Just as a man speaks to his friend. It was in that tent of meeting. In that closet, if you will. In that secret place of prayer where Moses would talk to the Lord and the Lord would talk to him face to face, obviously not face to face. God doesn't have a face. God's a spirit, right? But the idea is the intimacy, the, idea, the intimacy here, just as a man speaks to his friend. And so through Moses' times of prayer in that tent, he developed a very intimate relationship with God. And so he got used to the presence of God, being with him. He loved the presence of God. He appreciated the presence of God. He longed for the presence of God. And so it appears that Moses went into the tent at this moment, and this is what the conversation he had with the Lord, verse 12. Then Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you have said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, I pray you, if I have found favor in your sight, in other words, if that's true, if what you say say about me is true, you know me by name, I found favor in your sight, if that's true, let me know your ways, that I may know you, so that I may find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people." And he said, my presence shall go with you, and I will give you rest. In other words, God says, hey, Moses, okay, 
I hear you. And I'll go with you. Verse 15, notice he says, then he said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us that, so that we, I and your people may be distinguished from all the other people who, you are, who, you, who are upon the face of the earth? Then the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. And so again, God doesn't change. He's immutable. We're looking at this from a human perspective, obviously. And, uh, and yet it appears that God relented in the sense that he um, decided not to destroy the people. He had originally told Moses, hey, Moses, don't worry. This. I'll kill them all and just we'll start a new group. And he's like, no, don't do that. Because then the, Israel, the Egyptians will go, well, look it. God took his people out in the wilderness to kill him. We could have done that here in Egypt. And so he was constantly appealing and interceding on behalf of the people. And we see God relenting from these things. And again, we have to keep in mind the difference between God's intent and God's decree. God did not decree that the nation of Israel was going to be destroyed. There was times he wanted to destroy him, but that's not what he had decreed. In other words, God's wish is not always God's will. And 2 Peter talks about how God doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come to repentance. Is that a a verse that teaches universalism? Does that mean everybody's not going to perish and everybody's going to come to repentance? No. It's it's, it's trying to differentiate between God's wish and God's will. There may be things that God wants, but they're not things that he has willed or decreed. And so he's communicating on a human level to Moses. And so while he didn't want to go with the people, didn't want to go, uh, he had decreed that he would go. But what comes out of this interaction is this, this example of Moses refusing to go forward without knowing that God was going to go with him. I'm not taking another step unless I'm convinced, God, that you're coming with me. Because an angel isn't going to do it for me. I want you. And then he says, verse 18, I pray you, show me your glory. That is a radical request. And I think the essence of that request is, God, you know what? I want, I want more of you. I'm not content with where I'm at in my relationship with you. I want more of you. I want you to show me your glory. And we know that God's glory is the word that the Bible uses to, as the summation of all of his attributes. When, when we say, you know, God's glory, we're, we're talking about everything that we know God to be, his, his, he's faithful, he's loving, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's, he's a God of wrath, he's a God of justice, he's you know, all these things. And so basically he's saying, God, I want you to show me yourself in all of your glory. Maybe it would be another way to say that. And notice how God responds, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you. And notice immediately he responds with one of his attributes. 
and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one can see me and live. And we know that's uh, also a New Testament principle that's repeated there, that no man has ever seen God. Uh, Again, God is spirit. He doesn't have a face to see, a body to see. Then the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me and you shall stand there on the rock and it will come out and it will come about while my glory is passing by and I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away and you will see my back and my face shall not be seen. Again, God doesn't have a face. He doesn't have a back. He doesn't have anything. Okay. Um, as far as a human body is concerned. But I think the idea here is, you know, he is so glorious that none of us could ever be in his presence and live to tell about it. In fact, all we could maybe stand is just seeing a little bit of him, kind of his backside. Verse 34, or chapter 34, now the Lord said to Moses, cut out, For yourself two stone tablets, like the former ones, I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets, which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No man has come up, no man is to come up with you, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of the mountain. So he cut two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him, and he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. And now here it is. It's going down. Moses has asked God, made this radical request, show me your glory. Show me yourself in all your glory, God. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, Notice, it's not so much what Moses saw as what Moses, what, heard. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Notice, he's just listing off his attributes. God is describing himself, who keeps loving kindnesses for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. And yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. In other words, God was reminding Moses, you know what, I'm a gracious God and I am going to forgive these people. But sadly, the choices that this generation makes, they're going to affect their children and their grandchildren. Not that they'll be punished. The Bible makes it clear, no kid is ever punished for their parents' sin. But sometimes parents' sin does affect their children and their grandchildren. There's consequences for generations to come. But notice this in verse eight, Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He's worshiping God. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us as your own possession. Again, here was a man, this was all about Moses wanting God to be with him. He was desperate 
He, he was thinking he was about to lose the guiding presence of the Lord, being with him, going before him. And he was going to appoint a second-rate angel to, to kind of do, do his bidding. And he, he was desperate. I, no, God, I don't want that. I want your presence. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this in his book, Revival. The inevitable and constant preliminary to revival has always been a thirst for God, a living thirst for a knowledge of the living God and a longing and a burning desire to see him acting, manifesting himself and his power and the longing for the exhibition of his glory. That's what Moses was praying. Lord, I want to see an exhibition of your glory. Put on display your glorious attributes. And God said, all right. And he listed his attributes. You're going to see my compassion and my grace and the fact that I'm slow to anger, that I'm abounding in loving kindness and truth, and that I'm a forgiving God. And so this is the third and final, and I would say most important, prerequisite for revival. You must desperately seek God's face through prayer. And take Moses as their example to be daring enough to ask God to show you his glory. And you don't know what that's going to look like, by the way. You don't know what the answer to that might be in your life. This is what it looked like in Moses' life. It might look something different, but the point is God will answer that prayer by putting on display his attributes in your life, in your situation, in your marriage, in your family, uh, in your health, in your finance, in some way, shape, or form. And it may be painful at first. It may be scary at first. But at the end, you will be like Moses who made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. Like Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, but blessed be the name of the Lord. And that was Moses' response when the Lord took everything from him, was to bow on his face and worship. Let's answer the third question here in the time we have remaining. What are the true marks of revival? What are the true marks of revival? This is more the, um, we've talked about what revival is and how do, how do we put ourselves in the best possible position to experience revival. But now, what are we looking for here? What, 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 is, uh, what should we expect here? And, and I think I need to say, first of all, that, that nowhere in Scripture do we see taught or exemplified any of the strange physical, emotional phenomenon that's often associated with the so-called Holy Ghost revivals that, that are so popular today? We don't see any of that stuff in, in Scripture. However, there are a number of, of signs or fruits of revival that, again, based on the passage that, that we've been looking at on revival, when, when God sovereignly chooses to supernaturally revive a person or a church, they will experience some dramatic things. In fact, 
during the Great Awakening, there were such dramatic uh, emotional responses of people. Like in the middle of sermons, people were so brought under conviction by the Holy Spirit of their sin that they would jump up out of their chair and they would run down to the altar in the middle of the sermon wanting to repent. They didn't even wait for the altar call or the invitation. And, and there was just this, this emotion that came over the people as, they, as the Spirit of God swept through those, those colonies as, uh, as they were hearing the preaching of God's Word and to the point where there was a lot of critics going, hey, this is not right. And, uh, and so Jonathan Edwards had to write a number of books defending the surprising emotional responses that occurred during the Great Awakening. And so... Uh, uh, Religious Affections would be one of those, probably most popular books they wrote. He has a, a book he wrote, The Theology or theology of Revival. Um, excellent, excellent resources. But anyway, I made a little list here of the things that I think would evidence that an individual or a church is experiencing true revival. They'll be marked by some things. Number one, you'll have the joy of your salvation restored. That was the song, prayer of David, right? Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Number two, you will fall in love with Jesus again. Revelation chapter two, you've left your first love. Remember, repent, redo. Remember what it used to be like when you first got saved. And so you'll fall in love with Jesus again. You'll have an increased hunger for God's word. Again, the psalmist in Psalm 119, connects revival with the word of God. How much he loved and hungered for and thirsted for the word. Number four, you'll pray more frequently and fervently. You won't, you won't be able to, to wait to get to your little tent of meeting, wherever that might be, where you would just have that alone time with the Lord. You'll have a heightened sensitivity to sin. And if there's been areas of complacency where maybe you've just got sloppy in your sanctification and you've kind of been cutting yourself some slack and not, you know, just, well, I don't do that all the time. It's not, a, it's not like I don't do it every day and, you know, I, I don't even do it every week. It's just every, from time to time. It says, say, no, uh, that's sin that dishonors the Lord. I need to stop that by the grace of God. I need to ask him to mortify that, that, that deed of the flesh. And so you're, you're much more sensitized to sin. And you hate it more. And you want to remove it from your life. Number six, you'll pursue holiness more intensely. Again, this is the same idea. If you, if you have a heightened sensitivity to sin, hopefully you're going to run faster and farther away from that. You're going to pursue holiness to be set apart from that sin and to be set apart to God, to become more like Jesus. You're going to pursue holiness more with, with a greater intensity. Number seven, you'll want to make restitution for wrongs done. You'll be like Zacchaeus, who was a, a crook, and he, when he got saved, he immediately wanted to make restitution and wanted to pay back the people that he had ripped off. And so that may be something that the, the Spirit of God does in your life, that you're going to want to make restitution for wrongs done. You'll, you'll have a desire to be reconciled to other people as you're bringing your offering of worship to the Lord and you know somebody has something against you, you're like, you know what? I got to get right with that person. I'm going to leave my offering there. I'm going to go be reconciled to my brother, be reconciled to my sister. 
Number nine, you'll be more willing to selflessly and sacrificially serve others. I think a mark of revival in this church would be that there's a need presented and there's more people that volunteer to meet that need than we really need. That would be a revival happening in the life of this church instead of going, okay, we announced this need and nobody came forward to say, hey, I can do that. I can help with that. So you'd be more willing to selflessly, sacrificially serve others. Number 10, you'll have a closer, sweeter fellowship with fellow believers. Number 11, you'll have a greater burden for the lost and a greater boldness to share the gospel with the lost. That's how you know God is reviving your heart, that you're, you're more burdened for the lost people in your family and in your neighborhood and at work and at school and in your community and you and you have this greater zeal and boldness to, to tell them about Jesus. And then lastly, number 12, you'll have a greater passion for the glory of God. You'll have a greater passion for the glory of God. Like the psalmist said in Psalm 115, verse 1, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory. It's not about you. And I said this earlier, we don't pray for revival uh, for us We pray for revival for God, that he would revive us so that he would get glory and honor, more glory and honor from us and through us. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, he said, this is the main reason for calling attention to this whole subject of revival and for urging everybody to pray for revival, to look for it, to long for it. This is the reason, the glory of God. He said the main reason we should be praying for revival is that we are anxious to see God's name vindicated and his glory manifested for God's sake, for the glory of his name, let us intercede and pray for a visitation of God's spirit. R.A. Torrey, another well-known revivalist of the last century or so, had a recipe for revival that he would share with churches as he would travel around from church to church. He he would give them this exhortation. He said, first, let a few Christians, they need not be many, get thoroughly right with God themselves. So in other words, who wants to get right with God? Right? That's where it starts. There's got to be a few folks that are really serious about getting right with God. Second, let them bind themselves together in a prayer group to pray for revival until God opens the heavens and comes down. So it starts with a a group of people getting right with God. They find one another and they start praying together for revival, asking God to rend the heavens and, and come down. And third, He says, let them put themselves at the disposal of God for him to use as he sees fit in winning others to Christ. In other words, those those folks get right with God and they get together and they start to pray and and the result of them praying is is they, they get up off their knees and they're like, Lord, here I am. Use me. And they go out into the community and they start telling other people about Christ because they want Christ's name to be exalted in the lives of unbelievers. I think a great example of 
revival, another great example would be Isaiah chapter 6. And we don't have time to look at that this morning, but I'm assuming that most of you are aware of God's call to the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 where it says, and I saw what? The Lord. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? And he, he saw this vision of God and the angels crying what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And immediately, what did he do? He said, I'm undone. I'm going to be destroyed. I'm a sinful man. And immediately, God sent one of those angels and brought the coal from the altar and put it on his lips and cleansed him. And then remember his response? Jesus, uh, God said, who will go for me? And Isaiah said, here am I, send me. And so I think that the characteristics of revival, according to the example of Isaiah, would be a fresh awareness or consciousness of God in your life, a, a deep brokenness over your sin or a sense of unworthiness, and a keen yieldedness to God or just a willingness to serve the Lord. That's what revival looks like. And so those are the things you should pray for, a fresh awareness of God's presence, a deep brokenness over your sin and your sense of unworthiness, just a, a, a keen yieldedness or willingness to serve the Lord. I don't know about you, but I want that in my life. I want that in the life of this church. I want these things to be true. I want, I want to see this fruit in my life. I want to see this fruit in your lives and our lives together so that we can go out of here and make an impact in this community ultimately for the glory of God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for all that your word says about revival and Lord, there's so much more that, that could be said but I trust that this was enough, Lord, to pique people's interest, to kind of whet their appetite that they would want to... Um, launch into a lifetime of learning what your word teaches about revival and what it, what it looks like in their own life. And so, Lord, would you sovereignly and graciously and mercifully grant me revival, grant this church revival, Lord, grant us revival, grant this community revival, we pray, ultimately for the glory of your name. In the name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Well, we've got a couple, well, we've got one of our pastors here ready to serve you. Um, we'll hopefully have another one on the other side shortly. But uh, before we dismiss, uh, we have a great privilege this morning to welcome 20 new members into our church. And so we're going to invite them up here quickly. And uh, as I read your name, just coming up here, and uh, we're going to have a chance to greet these folks in just a moment, but I want them to come, and they're going to share a covenant uh, with us 
as a new member, and, uh, and then we'll pray for them, and you guys can come and welcome them. But let me introduce them to you, David and Bonnie Booker. You guys just come and uh, stand up here in the front. Uh, Ethan Cockerham, Jim and Phyllis Ealings, Jesse and Lauren Fluellen, Tony and Sandra Mock, Jacob Parrott, Christian Penaloza, Alan and Letitia Pennington, Brian and Courtney Robinson, Joe and Julia Santini, Christian Sheehan, and Andrew and Mandy Stewart. And we've had a, a wonderful month together during equipping hour, uh, just talking about their testimonies, how they came to know Jesus Christ uh, as their Lord and Savior. And, uh, and so these folks love Christ and they love his church and they feel called now and led by the Holy Spirit to join uh, this church to become official members. And so uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share uh, this membership affirmation with them and they're going to respond by saying we will. And so I'm going to ask you guys if you wouldn't mind turning and facing me and uh, just uh, respond when I, I give you the, the sign. You'll know when to say it, okay? As a member of Lakeside Bible Church, will you protect the unity of this church by acting in love toward other members, by refusing to gossip, and by following the leaders? Well, good. Will you share the responsibility of this church by praying for its spiritual growth, by inviting the unsaved to attend, and by warmly welcoming those who visit? Will you serve the ministry of this church by discovering your gifts and talents, by being equipped to serve by the pastors and elders, and by developing a servant's heart? And then lastly, will you support the testimony of this church by attending faithfully, by giving regularly, and by living a godly life? Amen. Let me pray for you guys. Father, thank you for this dear group of folks um, Lord, thank you for your grace and mercy that you've already displayed in their lives by bringing them to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Um, Lord, thank you that you've given them a desire to uh, join up with us uh, in this local body of believers and to covenant with us, Lord, to live lives that are pleasing to you. And uh, Lord, I know that you have gifted each one of these folks uh, with some measure of spiritual giftedness uh, for the purpose of building up this body and strengthening this body and helping this body become more mature and more like Christ. And so would you use them and their gifts to do that? And would you use the rest of our gifts, Lord, to, to build them up and help them become more like Christ? And that, Lord, we would be a blessing to them and they would be a blessing to us. Lord, that you would assimilate these families into the life of our church, that we would do a good job of of reaching out to them and, and welcoming them into this family. And Lord, that you would be glorified and honored as we all strive to be one mind, one heart, working together for the cause of Christ and the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You guys can turn back around. Don't go anywhere, though, because I uh, want to encourage you guys to start a line and just the rest of you come and just greet these folks. And you already know some of them. And so you might be just uh, giving them a hug and welcoming them. Some of you may be introducing yourself to them. 
Um, but I uh, want to encourage you to come and do that. And when you're done, uh, going through the line, again, guys, if you could help us stack the chairs and bring them out into the hallway and then go, get up in the attic and get some, uh, get some of that wood down so we can put our, cra- our, our, our uh, carnival together for Wednesday night, all right? So you're dismissed. <laughs>